This is the safari. Licensing. Everyone thinks it's a pretty easy thing to do. Uh, everyone wants to do licensing because they think it's a way of uh, monetizing and cash cowing their brand. But in point of fact, it is something very much more complicated than that. And our next guest, Michael Stone, who's the co-founder and chairman of the Beanstalk Group, is probably best positioned, more, probably better positioned than anyone I know to talk about licensing. He's been one of the leaders of uh, a company that has advised some of the biggest companies in our industry, from Coca-Cola on mega brand side to the Olsen twins, um, bring their businesses to life through licensing and through brand extension. And he recently wrote a book. It's called The Power of Licensing, Harnessing Brand Equity. And I thought it would be really interesting to get a sneak peek into his thinking and, and, and the pages of that book and bring them to life here on the podcast. So let's dive right in. Michael, thank you for joining us. Recently returned from being uh, inducted into the Licensing Hall of Fame. Tell us about that. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Morty. Are you feeling very proud as a giant of the industry? My ego is soaring. <laughs> very, very good. Well, for everyone listening, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, I did a little introduction, but uh, never better than from the horse's mouth. Yeah, I found my way into licensing 30 years ago or so through a roundabout route, right? Everybody uh, takes twists and turns in their careers, and I took one uh, back in the mid-1980s. I was a young practicing lawyer doing work for National Football League Properties, which is the licensing arm of the NFL, and got sick of law, and I thought, wow, this licensing, this looks pretty interesting. Yeah. So uh, started a licensing business with a friend of mine. And that was the Beanstalk then and the Beanstalk now? That was, oh, that was actually a prior agency uh, that we sold, and then we started Beanstalk in 1992. Very good, very good. So you wrote a book, uh, and that was one of, the, one of the reasons, obviously, we've known each other for years, but... What a wonderful moment to be able to get you off the, off the, the back of finishing, completing, and, and actually launching this book this year. I remember asking my publisher uh, how long it had to be. and He said, good business book is at least 220 pages. And I nodded and said, no problem. Yeah. In my head, I thought, do I really have that much to say? I would have run for the hills. When <laughs> that. And it, was, it turned out to be over 350 pages. But the reason I wrote the book was uh, back in 2005, we sold our agency to Omnicom. Uh, $16 billion advertising, PR, and other marketing disciplines holding company. And as I started meeting my fellow leadership at sister agencies and hearing what they were doing for their clients, um, it, it dawned on me, it was a real aha moment, it dawned on me that the reason that our clients are in licensing or should be in licensing are the same as any other marketing discipline. That it, it, licensing is a marketing and communications discipline. So that was the aha moment for me. And then fast forward, you know, 12 years, I turned over the CEO job to uh, a colleague, became chairman and thought, okay, now what do I do? Uh, so I wrote the book because I wanted people in the marketing industry to understand that licensing is actually a very effective marketing communications tool, particularly in today's very complex marketing and retail environment. 
it's a very valuable and effective tool. Absolutely. And so at the base of it all is brand equity. We talk a lot about um, something similar. I, I refer to it through the lens of global brand. And you know, those two words, global and brand, brand obviously um, needs little introduction, but the notion of global, not just meaning cross borders, but but a fulsome brand able to, yes, cross borders, but cross classifications, reach new customers. And sort of the the pinnacle of, of, of one's business is to try and create a global brand, uh, therefore sort of reaching its full potential. What does brand equity mean to you? Uh, how does How is it defined through the experts' lens? Well, you know, people, in my opinion, throw around the word brand very, very casually. Everything is not a brand. Uh, people come into my office and say, I've created this design for this product and can you license my brand? And I'm thinking, what brand are you talking about? Everything is not a brand. So to me, a brand is, is a name that most people will say the same thing about. So if you approach 10 people in the street and, say, and ask them, what is, you know, tell, me, tell me what Coca-Cola is, tell, describe Coca-Cola. It's a beverage, it's in a, in a red and white can, it's in a bottle, it's brown. People will say the same thing. And that to me is the power of a brand. People will say the same thing. They have the same images, the same thoughts uh, about what the name means. So I think that's really what brand equity is. And what I discovered in writing the book as I researched a whole bunch of companies to use as case studies, I found that some of the really old American companies that have been around for over 100 years, Black & Decker, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, uh, they, their founders described what they were trying to do with their company, described their brand, and those attributes still exist today, over 100 years later, the original founders' equities. And so I think brand is a, is a function of, of history. It's a function of people's image and perceptions of what a product is. And when you say equities, you mean codes and DNA? Describe equities a little to bit. To me, a brand's equities are the six or 10 words that you would use to describe a brand. So I'll go back to what I said about Coca-Cola. What are the six words that you would use to describe that brand? Uh, and you can pretty much figure out what they are. And in general, it's not trust and quality. Uh, trust and quality is inherent in every brand. That's why consumers like brands, because it enables them to make a purchase decision. It enables them to trust the quality of the brand. Not so long ago, you know, well, certainly when I was growing up and when you were growing up, Morty, uh, we got all of our information about brands through advertising. That's where the information came from. Maybe an occasional article in a magazine and a newspaper. And if you're really diligent, you could buy consumer reports. And that's how we learned about, about products and brands. Today, it's much different. Today, we have so much information available to us uh, that brands need to be much smarter in terms of communicating their message. And that's where I think licensing is a valuable tool. It helps brands communicate their message. Hmm. And so, therefore, there's a lot of value that comes out of that. And I mean, people uh, talk about licensing, but licensing, therefore, flows into sort of the value of intellectual property. And, and, and there actually is a whole industry now about people buying intellectual property as these 
these portfolio companies. Um, have you seen a, a sort of an evolution uh, of how people value brands versus companies? Yeah, I think, you know, there are two schools of thought out there right now. There's one school of thought supported by some really smart people that brands are dying, that we don't need brands anymore because we have so much information available to us that we don't need brands to, uh, to communicate trust or quality and, and to help us make a buying decision. That We have all of the product information that we could possibly want available to us at the click of a button and purchasing is very easy. I don't ascribe to that school of thought. There's another school of thought, which I do ascribe to, that says, yes, we have all this information available to us, but people are overloaded with information. There's too much information available, and they still want to make quick buying decisions, and brands deliver that to people. Uh, they, they enable them to make a quick and easy buying decision when they're generally not sure what to buy. Yeah, you often hear that the, the term uh, a brand is a promise, and that promise, if it's repeated, uh, ends up delivering that that promise, hopefully over many many decades. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Morty. The uh, a brand is a promise, and that's that promise is inherent in all the licensed products. If licensing is done correctly, the promise of the brand is inherent in all those products. So now consumers see additional products with the brand on it in different aisles of the same store or in different stores entirely. And it enables the consumer to accept that promise uh, from the brand through different products. So, so one of the areas that I find so interesting from reading the book is, and I, I referenced it in the introduction about this, this notion, or as I interpreted it, as licensing as a Trojan horse. It allows someone to leverage their intellectual property, to partner with people who are in adjacent categories, to deliver that promise in different ways. Uh, and then to therefore have your marketing expense be subsidized by someone else's pocketbook. Um, in uh, retail land, uh, we often talk about you know, customer acquisition cost or CAC or rent is the new CAC, says all the digital native brands. Obviously, rent has been the CAC for 5,000 years. We've talked about that a lot on this program. But sort of therefore negative CAC is something whereby you can acquire a customer and actually have someone else pay for it. Um, in this case, it's sort of, uh, negative marketing cost because you're, it's a profit center and also you're acquiring customers. So, you know, there's been, a, I think it, it's, a, it's a recurring theme in the book and maybe give some examples from the beginning of, of the sort of the history of, of, of licensing whereby you've seen that uh, occur and how you, how you really feel that it is a, a truth. Well, look, uh, you know, today's consumer is very different than the consumers of the past. Consumers no longer want messages pushed at them. They want to be invited to participate with a brand. They want to interact with the brand, and brands need to interact and sort of entangle themselves with consumers. So when I, when I look at sort of the history of licensing and try to see who's done it best over a long period of time, I have to turn to the Coca-Cola company. Uh, the Coca-Cola company understood licensing as a marketing and communications uh, tool a very, very long time ago. Uh, Asa Candler, who is essentially the founder of modern-day Coca-Cola, used products back in the 1890s to communicate to consumers that this was more than a beverage, that it was a lifestyle. And Coca-Cola today is still using licensing and uh, associated products 
to communicate that very same message. They recently launched uh, a, a line of clothing with Tommy Hilfiger. Uh, they've done collaborations for runways and for famous brands, uh, famous um, designer brands. Uh, and they are still using licensing to promote the idea and communicate the message that Coca-Cola is a lifestyle and that Coca-Cola is ubiquitous. It's been the same message for over 100 years. And so, uh, you know, I see licensing as um, a way to persuade a consumer to participate with the brand. It's sort of in our digital world, I like to think of it as an analog tool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you talked a lot about the Stanley brand in the book. Uh, maybe elaborate on that. Well, Stanley has been in licensing for a very long time also. Back in 1998, I think, they realized that the most... The, the place that they needed to focus on in terms of selling their products were professionals and serious do-it-yourselfers. Professionals are guys who use tools uh, on the job. And serious do-it-yourselfers are guys who can build a deck in the backyard over the weekend. And I say guys because it's mostly guys. Which are you? Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> neither. I'm, not the, I'm the guy who can't hang a picture on the wall without cracking the whole wall. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the everyday do-it-yourselfer. But Stanley invited... Uh, us to help them create a licensing program with products that were targeted at professionals, welding equipment, protective gear for the eyes and the knees and the elbows, uh, serious products, uh, wet dry vacs, uh, often the products that we were licensing, I, I didn't even know what they were. I didn't understand what they were because I'm not that kind of a consumer. But Stanley realized very early on that they could reach the professional market with a host of products that they don't make themselves. Uh, and that turned out to be licensed products. Today, they're in over 90,000 doors with licensed products, probably close to $2 billion in sales in licensed products. So it's a big business. So there are obviously benefits, uh, uh, risks, and rewards to licensing. Obviously, let's focus on the benefits uh, and maybe also elaborate on some of the you know, some things you have to watch out for. Yeah, there are definitely risks in licensing, but they can be mitigated. And I use the word mitigated because they can't be eliminated. Uh, but let me, let me tell you sort of what I've narrowed down as the five sort of purposes or benefits of licensing. And Morty, as you hear me or the listeners uh, who are listening in, uh, hear me state these. Think about every single marketing discipline you can think of, PR, advertising, anything, web design. These are the objectives of any marketing discipline, but they are the objectives of licensing. Licensing allows a company to maintain a presence in a business that has strategic value, but which for which the company doesn't want to invest in themselves. It, it allows companies to build brand awareness and reinforce brand values. It allows companies to engage the consumer and strengthen the relationship with their existing consumers. Uh, it allows companies to reach new consumers and educate them about the brand. It allows them to extend into new channels of distribution and new paths in the shopping journey. Uh, and, of course, they make money with licensing. Uh, Stanley, for example, makes a lot of money uh, through the royalties they generate through licensing. So take a brand like P&G's Febreze. Febreze uh, is an air refresher. Uh, but it's different than, say, their competitors, Airwick and Glade, because Febreze doesn't just mask odor, it eliminates odor. Uh, so Febreze uh, wanted consumers to understand that they 
that this is a powerful air refresher uh, that, ma that masks and eliminates odor. So the natural categories for Febreze to license into are products that are smelly, uh, where they can eliminate the odor. Um, and so Febreze uses its name on Glad trash bags. It uses its name on kitty litter. Uh, and it's a very successful way to communicate to the consumer that Febreze is about odor elimination. And I can go on and on with other examples. Uh, um, you know, Energizer is the number one battery brand in the United States, right? You find batteries in virtually any store you walk into, uh, in the food and drug chain or the mass, mass channel chain. Uh, but Energizer wants to be known as more than batteries. We're a power and we're a light company. So how do they communicate that message to consumers? Well, there's lots of ways. They can do all sorts of things online and they can do things in digital advertising and they can use influencers, but they can also use licensing. And they do use licensing uh, for a host of products that are associated with power and light uh, uh, that can be sold in different aisles of the store uh, that can communicate the message that Energizer is more than just a battery. I think it's really interesting uh, to, look, to listen to you in the context of management. This is, these are businesses. Licensing is a business. Not only is it a business, it has many tentacles that flow into legal, uh, global rights, um, uh, compliance, accounting. There's a whole series of management uh, uh, techniques, including agency, which you know very well. Um, but I remember from my early days of meeting you and you were running literally the whole management uh, or, or of someone else's licensing program. Um, that's huge plumbing that one needs. So you either do it through an agency or you do it yourself, but you got to have a whole team. And I often find that people see licensing as this, oh, I've reached the plateau where I can do licensing. Lucky me, it's just free money and, you know, give my name to someone. Hugely irresponsible, obviously. Uh, and But you'd be surprised, I'm surprised by how many people uh, actually think that way. Um, talk a little bit about the, the amount of infrastructure you need to maintain or let's say launch, conceive of, launch, and then maintain a licensing program. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I want to get back to the risks that you asked me about earlier, which will Which is the same, I guess, part of the same thing, the same. right? Yeah, yeah. One of the risks is that you are, uh, that you are not paying attention to how your, your logo and trademark is used. Let's face it. For all these companies that are famous enough to be in licensing, the most valuable thing they own is their name. Coca-Cola company, the headquarters, God forbid, could burn to the ground in Atlanta. They could get started again because they own the name Coca-Cola. So this, this intellectual property is the most valuable thing that companies own. So when you engage in licensing, whether it's through an agency or through an in-house staff or both, because if you have an agency, you still need in-house staff, uh, it is a major undertaking. You need to have a very firm strategy for licensing. This is not a tactic. This is a strategy. You need to know what your goals are, know what your objectives are, have a positioning statement, know who your target consumer is for licensed products, know what you're trying to accomplish with licensed products, understand the distribution channels, and most importantly, understand the competition. Just because you're number one or number two in your particular category as a brand owner doesn't mean that you can succeed in somebody else's category. You know, I use athletic performance footwear as, as an example all the time. If you have a brand that is ideal, ideally suited to, uh, to extend into athletic performance footwear, forget it. 
There's too much competition already. Nike, Puma, Adidas, New Balance. There's so many brands in that category that no one can launch a new brand in that category through a, through a license. So you have to understand the competition. And if you don't have a firm strategy like that, that everyone understands, and you're not prepared to manage the program, because this is not a business where you sign contracts and say, God bless you, send the check. You have to, brand owners have to manage these licensees, have to understand what they're doing, how they're selling the product, where they're selling the product, and, and help them and support them. And if you don't, a brand owner doesn't do all of that, then there are risks. Yeah, uh, I hear people calling it policing the licensees sometimes because they're trying to really make sure that people stay on track, particularly internationally, I think. Yeah. I, I like. I, I don't like to call it policing. I, I figured because I like. I like to think of it as a partnership. Yeah. Uh, you know, the licensees are not adversaries. Uh, they're trying to make uh, a living. They're trying to make a good product. They're trying to make money. They're trying to have a lot of sales, but they do have to follow follow guidelines. And and the licensor is in charge. Everything needs to be approved. Every step that the licensee takes needs to be approved and managed. And and if a brand owner does that, they really will mitigate the risks. Because at the end of the day, the biggest risk with licensing is a loss of control. The brand owner is letting somebody else use their valuable trademark. And at the end of the day, that company is going out and selling it to retailers, selling it online, uh, manufacturing the product. And so there is always going to be that little bit of loss of control. You can't totally take over. But if you manage the program properly and have a good strategy going in and choose your licensees carefully with a lot of due diligence, you really can mitigate the risks. So I think uh, if you think about the, um, the, the way in which people go to market, um, oftentimes I'm, I, if they don't adhere to um, partnering with their licensees in order to make sure that their brand codes are being interpreted correctly, and that promise is being transferred from one's own company to, frankly, someone else's company uh, in order to get to that consumer. Uh, don't Obviously, you're not going to mention any names, but are there recurring themes where when people do trip up, they trip up on these one or two areas? Yeah, there are a number of places where people can trip up, and, and there are sort of two kinds of risks involved in licensing, I would say. One is internal risks, and the other is external risks. Internal risks are the ones that consumers don't know about. So a licensee fails to launch the product on time, or the licensee fails to pay royalties when they're due, uh, or the licensee sells in a country that they're not supposed to sell in. Generally, those are risks, uh, but the consumers don't know about that, those kinds of risks. The kinds of risks that consumers know about are when a product fails or when a product uh, has... Uh, safety or quality issues and has to be recalled. Uh, those are the kind of risks that con the consumer knows. I'd say that the risk that's, that has, you have to, brand owners have to look out for the most is to make sure that, that everything that the licensee is doing, all the products, all the promotion, all the marketing is being approved. Uh, it's the approval process that has to be very, very diligently overseen. And now with social media, you know, it's really tough to make sure that the brand owner is understanding what the licensee is doing on social media because that happens fast. Uh, and license Too fast. Yeah, and brand owners don't have time to approve everything that's going out on social media by a licensee. So you know, social media guidelines are really important. 
when people uh, start thinking about, let alone licensing, but even their own companies, um, what's the legal framework one has to think about about protecting one's IP globally? It's expensive. Uh, even to maintain is expensive, not just a one-time occurrence. Can you give a little bit of color around that? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you can't license your brand unless you own it. Uh, and the brand is made up of a lot of different things. It's the name, it's the logo, it's advertising slogans. In the case of Harley-Davidson, it's the sound of the engine. Uh, so there's a lot of different kinds of intellectual property that has to be protected. And in terms of licensing outside the United States, you really have to make sure that you own the trademarks and intellectual property that you're licensing. And it can be expensive. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that trip up because they figure we are very, very famous. And so therefore we can license in China. Uh, I, I had experience with an automobile company who had huge plans for licensing their brand in China and huge opportunities until they discovered that they don't own their trademark in China. Uh, and so understanding where you own your trademark and how it can be used country by country, region by region is really important, and it's and it's and it can be expensive. We, we sometimes use the term Western brand imperialism, whereby the American or British or French brand decides to go global and thinks that their way of doing things is the way everyone else should do things. Uh, in your globalization of, of the licensing programs of your of your uh, clients and, and and companies you've worked with, do you find that um, that that other countries or the emerging markets are actually now surpassing our abilities? Or, are we, or do you think the arrogance sometimes of Western brands is diminishing? Is there a leveling of the playing field? What's your take on sort of the, the mindset of the field? Uh, I think, I, I love the term uh, Western imperialism because I think that American brand owners still don't entirely understand how different it is to license the brand in other countries around the world. Uh, this is not a one-size-fits-all strategy. Uh, different countries, different regions of the world have all sorts of different customs. Uh, I remember when we were doing some, we're, we do a lot of licensing for P&G and we're licensing uh, Mr. Clean, uh, very successfully in the United States in sort of cleaning tools like sponges. Well, when you go overseas, uh, consumers use sponges differently in France and the UK and mm -hmm. Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, in some countries, they don't use sponges. They have a different way of cleaning their dishes. And, and, and so you've got to be a, they have different ways of sweeping. Uh, some countries use brooms that you push, and some countries use brooms that you, that you sweep back and, back and forth. And so you have to understand what the customs and habits are in, in every country or every region of the world at least uh, in order to uh, be successful at licensing. You know, Stanley is very successful with ladders. Well, you can't license ladders in Japan because people live in small apartments. They have no room to store them, and, 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 then, and they don't want ladders. Uh, so you need to understand what's going on in every country of the world in order to be effectively licensing your Which brand. Effective, the, the good licensor is therefore also a good merchant. Yeah, exactly. You have to be a good merchant. I mean, you know from some of your work in, in the apparel category, I was sitting here and Marvin Traub's uh, ghost is watching over us, um, that you know, apparel brands are, are thought of differently in different parts of the world. Some, in some countries, you've got uh, an apparel brand that's thought of, thought of as preppy, and in another country, it's, it's thought of as a, 
as a more luxury brand. So spend, spend a few m- minutes quickly talking about the direct-to-retailer deal. You just pick one retailer, you go hell for leather with that guy uh, uh, or company, and um, pluses, minuses? Yeah, there's pluses and minuses, obviously. Uh, the direct-to-retail opportunity is one that is often explored by brand owners. The pluses are that you have one retailer that's trying to differentiate themselves from other retailers by using your brand, uh, and they will put uh, a lot of energy uh, behind that brand because they know it. they're the only store where you can buy it. I mean, use Martha Stewart as an example at Macy's and at other retailers for other categories. Um, it's, it's a way to really get a retailer behind a brand. The risk, of course, is that you have all your eggs in one basket. Uh, if the retailer has a change in strategy or another brand comes along that they like uh, and they drop you, uh, it's tough then to recover from that. All your eggs in one big basket. Yeah. I mean, Martha Stewart actually has done something that very few brands have been able to do. Yeah, talk about that. It's, she, it's incredible in three different places. Yeah, and not only that, she was exclusive at Kmart. Usually when you're exclusive at Kmart and you leave Kmart, there's no place else to go. Tell everyone where she, what she did, where she was. Well, she, yeah, as she was at Kmart. She was an exclusive brand at Kmart, uh, and that relationship fell apart. Um, usually when you're an exclusive brand at a mass retailer like Kmart and you leave that, that retailer, there's no place else to go because you're known as a mass brand. She ended up at Macy's, which was really quite incredible. And Macy's has put uh, a lot of, sort of heft behind her. She's also, because no retailer can can sell everything, that's the one thing you have to realize with a retail exclusive, even if you're putting all your eggs in one basket, you can't give a retailer all categories because no retailer sells all categories. Horses for courses. Yeah, exactly. So Martha Stewart has her Macy's program. She has a craft program at Michael's. She has a home office program at, uh, at Staples, I think. Uh, so she's divided up categories and aligned herself with with retail specialists in those categories. Really very, very effective. Yeah, that's an impressive example. So as we um, head towards the finish line, a few last questions. Um, celebrity as a brand. You have worked famously with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, among other uh, influencers and talent. In this day and age, and I, I think this will sort of bleed into the final question on the future of licensing, but with with all manner of brands emerging off of YouTube, off of social media, uh, out of the sports world, uh, celebrities, traditional celebrities from Hollywood, et cetera, what is, the, what is the, the one message that you would give to talent trying to see themselves as a brand? Yeah, there's a lot of celebrity licensing that goes on, uh, and it's been going on for a very long time. Sears was actually the forerunner in all of this. Uh, they had a great program with Cheryl Teagues and um, with Yvonne Gulagang, who almost no one knows who she is anymore. She was the number one tennis player in the world uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, so there are, and so celebrity licensing has been going on for a long time, and it's going to continue to go on, and it will include digital celebrities, not just the traditional Hollywood celebrities. But what I, what I say to celebrities, and I've met a lot of them who want to go into licensing, that there are some attributes that they must have. 
they must have a vision, a vision for a certain product category. So if you look at what Drew Barrymore is doing at Walmart with her flower brand, she has a vision for that brand, and it's communicated to the consumer. There's got to be a white space. You can't have a celebrity just going into a category where there's massive competition, and then there's no need for another brand. So when we did Mary-Kate and Ashley, uh, there was an enormous white space in fashion apparel uh, for tween girls at the mass level. Most importantly, a celebrity has to be willing to make a time commitment. And I try to scare celebrities off with this. If they come back to me after I've told them how much time it's going to take, then I believe that they're interested. This is a place where the celebrity's hand, the celebrity's signature, the celebrity's sensibility. And appearance. And appearance. I mean, it's got to be all aligned with the products. And the consumer has to believe that the celebrity has chosen this product or has designed this product or has had an influence in this product. Because at the end of the day, the reason consumers buy celebrity branded products is because they aspire to be like the celebrity. They want to look like them, smell like them, dress like them, eat like them, whatever the product is. It's about aspiration. So the celebrity has to be intimately involved with the product the products that are coming to market and it take, and the approval process that we talked about before takes a large time commitment. And finally, they have to have staying power. The celebrity has to be, have staying power. That's why all the stuff that the housewives have tried to do has all failed. Uh, and uh, it's why Olympic gold medalists almost never are successful in licensing because they don't have staying power. You need sort of an iconic uh, sort of status. Like George Foreman, for example, right. will always right. be George Foreman. Right. That's unbelievable. Some celebrities have managed to make the transition to a brand. I mean, Jacqueline Smith has had a program at Kmart now for over 35 years, and I'll bet that most consumers don't know that she was a enter television entertainer. Yeah, she's transitioned. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the uh, entourage of uh, talent can sometimes get in the way of their licensing businesses, whether it be the managers, the agents, uh, trying to keep them away from this business versus their day jobs? I think the managers and agents generally don't understand uh, what a licensing program requires. And don't forget, some of these some of these celebrities can make a million bucks showing up for a photo shoot. And to make a million dollars in licensing, it's going to take a couple of years. Product has to get to market, and there's a lot there's a lot of time. And so talent, and they don't get paid until yeah, that they don't happens. get paid. And agents and managers sometimes, you know, which I understand, they don't but, they don't yeah. want. Uh, their their client to be this engaged in, in something else, but some understand it. Yeah, I sometimes think of it as the sort of asset allocation of one's time, uh, you know, whether it's stocks and bonds, whatever it may be. But for these people who have their day jobs, uh, then they have endorsement deals, they have licensing deals, and then they have entrepreneurial activities, and I think their entourage try to keep them in the first two buckets. Yeah, some celebrities have managed to do an amazing job. Jennifer Lopez is all over the place, right? And She's in all sorts of product categories, movies, television. Uh, but she's a workaholic. She's a workaholic, yeah. yeah and that's go. what it takes. Um, so uh, finally, the future um, of licensing and branding. What, what do you think is coming over the horizon? What can you tell us about what's coming next? Well, I think increasingly uh, to win on what I call the shopping battlefield, uh, companies are going to recognize that licensing can help them win because it, it entangles the brand with the consumer. It allows the, the consumer makes their own decision to participate with the brand. So I think there will be a, a, a flurry, and there already is a flurry of activity in corporate brand licensing. 
that's number one. Number two, there are new product categories that are coming along all the time that licensing will play a big role in. And the one that everyone is looking at today is cannabis. Uh, you know, as it's been described to me as this is the liquor industry the day after prohibition. Everyone is jumping into this bandwagon as more and more states legalize recreational marijuana. And of course, the CBD uh, uh, category is, is legal nationally. And there's going to be a lot of licensing activity in this category, only because how else do you differentiate the product? You're already uh, seeing some of it with Willie Nelson and Snoop Dogg. And- yeah, the, a lot of celebrities have gotten into it. Snoop Dogg, Willie Nelson, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Cheech and Chong. I mean, all sorts of celebrities are getting into it. But eventually, you're going to see brands getting into it. Some of the big beverage brands are already investing in cannabis because they believe that they'll be able to put uh, not only C- CBD, but THC, the proactive element of uh, marijuana in beverages. Uh, so InBev and Constellation Brands, they're all investing in uh, cannabis businesses uh, in preparation for the development of, of products. So any concluding words from you, Michael? Well, my, my concluding words are that, uh, brand, as I said at the beginning, brands need to think of licensing as a way to invite the consumer to participate with the brand, a way to engage consumers in our connected world. It's it's a marketing strategy uh, that, if done correctly, uh, will further bond consumers to a brand, particularly at a time when younger consumers are very fickle about brand loyalty. So the more product that you can offer them, the more you can... uh, Focus on the message of the product that you want to deliver. And if you want to change your message, if a brand wants to change their message, licensing is a good way to, to do it. The more you can do that, the more licensing will be a part of a brand's marketing strategy. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael. A great thank you to Michael Stone of the Beanstalk Group who really is one of the most thoughtful people in our industry. It's been a pleasure to have him on. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it.